might have noticed that uh, there's another trip coming up, and uh, you could be part of that. Families to familiar here at the end of May, and uh, be part of uh, building a home in uh, Mexico for a family in great poverty. I think some of you will be familiar with the song, Under Pressure. It came out in 1981. It was a collaboration between the British rock band Queen and uh, singer David Bowie. And uh, here are some of the lyrics. I am not going to sing them. Pressure, pushing down on me, pushing down on you, no man asked for. Under pressure that burns a building down, splits a family in two. Pressure. Uh, yeah, pressure is destructive, it's divisive, and no man asked for it. No man or woman asks for it. Uh, it just comes on us suddenly. We don't choose to be under pressure. We don't wake up and say, hey, I, I think I'm going to be stressed to the max today. That sounds like a good idea. Pressure jumps on us suddenly. It's unwanted, unexpected, unavoidable. It's the week your tax bill is due and your AC breaks down. It's on Thursday when your boss saddles you with a huge project that he wants done by Monday. It's when the, the scholarship that you need to attend college falls through. It's when your car dies and leaves you stranded and making you late for work yet again. It's when your, your daughter skips school and gets caught shoplifting or your company is bought out one week and Eliminates your job the next week. It's when the guy you thought was the one ghosts you. It's, it's when you discover your best friend isn't talking to you because of something you said and you don't even know what that was. When the doctor's office calls with the results of your MRI and there's a surgery in your future. It's when the, the contract that you were counting on goes to your closest competitor. Or when over the phone you hear that a loved one has died. Pressure. You can't control when it appears. But you can choose how to respond. Over the next three weeks, we will look at three stories from the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. These three accounts of historical figures in the Old Testament. We're going to see... Three examples of pressure-packed situations. And from them, we can learn how to deal with pressure in a way that honors God. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that this Old Testament has value for you and me today and how we follow Jesus. It's not irrelevant. It's not unhelpful. And it's, in fact, the opposite. Uh, the scriptures tell us that yet this is recorded so that we will learn from Israel's history, from these Old Testament characters. So it is vital that we understand this. And the story we begin with today is in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And it introduces us to the first of several main characters that I want us to look at today. There are three main characters in this story, and some of them are in 
each of the stories we'll look at over this series. But this first one is 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. And it says this, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Now there's some textual variations in this verse. I think this is the the best understanding of it. Let me give you a little background to this guy Saul, because he's appeared in several chapters before this. It happens when Israel demanded a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And so, in effect, they were rejecting the authority of God as their king. They want to be like everybody else, and so they demand a king, and Saul was the candidate. And he's just a shy farmer. Uh, You read some of his story, and you realize how shy he is. He's socially awkward, but he was physically imposing. He was head and shoulders taller than anybody else around him. No sooner does Saul get identified as the guy who would be king than an enemy nation threatens Israel. And when Saul heard about it, the Spirit of God rushed in on him, it says. And he went into action. He inspired the people, stirred them all up, organized an army, and led them to victory. And so he was a hero. Right away, Israel made him king with great celebration. Now since Saul is featured in each of the three stories we'll look at over these next three weeks, I want to give you a a little fuller picture of him. Understand that physically Saul looks like a leader. And he starts out doing mighty things for God and in God's power. But after only a couple years of ruling, Saul falls back into old patterns. And he stops looking at things God's way and he becomes more dependent on his human abilities, which he's growing and growing in confidence in. And that can happen to any of us who are followers of Jesus today. We stop growing in faith. Yes, we've put our trust in Jesus, and then we stop growing. We stop developing. And we stop letting the Holy Spirit control us. We stop letting the Spirit empower us. We stop becoming more like Jesus, and we fall back into old patterns or new bad patterns. And we start to depend more on our own power and follow our own inclination rather than God's. And so though Saul had a good start, which he did, a good start, filled with the Spirit's power, his insecurities, his jealousies, his suspicions began to enter into his life and control his thoughts and his actions. And as a result, when under pressure, he's unable to cope and he reacts wrongly. Now that's what happens in chapter 13. Uh, Here's what's going on. Uh, His nation, Israel, that he's leading, is now threatened by the big bad bully on the block, the Philistines. The Philistine army is is threatening the nation. And we're going to see how the pressure builds up in Saul's life so that he panics. And there's a lesson for all of us in what happens here. Uh, so, so we'll go through the story, we'll, we'll meet these characters, we'll see the lessons, and then what God has for us. So let's pick up the story and meet the next character. That's uh, verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. So this is the response to the Philistines' threat. 2,000 were with him, and 1,000 were with Jonathan. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. All right, so th- this, Saul gets together 3,000 soldiers, 
and uh, he gives a thousand of them to Jonathan. Now, this is the first time Jonathan is mentioned in the Bible. And so we don't yet know that Jonathan is who he is. He's actually not just simply a commander of armed forces. He is Saul's son, King Saul's son. And Jonathan, in his own right, is a capable military leader. He's courageous. He's strong. He's brave. And Jonathan also appears to have a heart for God. He's anxious to defend God's honor. He's anxious to, to defend the land that God had promised to his people, Israel. And so when Jonathan sees a garrison of the Philistine warriors in a strategic place, this isn't the main army. This is a, a, a troop of the Philistine enemy, and they're threatening this area of Israel, the land God promised. And so Jonathan springs into action. He doesn't consult his dad, the king. And in fact, it seems like Saul lacked decisiveness in the situation. It seems like Jonathan achieved what his father should have been doing. Jonathan's quick action results in a victory, but it also made the main army of the Philistines pretty upset. Uh, The text says that Israel became like a foul smell to the enemy, and they're going to wipe them out. So they gather a large army to crush Israel. Look at the size of this army, verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth So they've got as many chariots as Israel has soldiers, and more soldiers than can be counted. This is a massive army that outnumbers Israel. And so what Saul does is he, he responds by calling his people to gather at a place called Gilgal. And, and that was where Saul was to meet up with a guy named Samuel. Samuel is the third character in our story, the third main character. Samuel is the the spiritual and judicial leader of Israel. He is a prophet and a judge, and as that, he communicated God's word to his people. God spoke through the prophet Samuel. This is how the king was to be guided. This is how the nation would know how to move. Samuel would deliver the word of God. And Samuel had told Saul that he would meet him in Gilgal. And here's the actual command. Uh, Samuel says, you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So that was what he told him. Yeah, you're going to go to Gilgal, but you wait seven days, and then we're going to hear from God. See, the idea was that they would worship, they would pray, they would make sacrifices to the Lord, asking for his guidance and blessing, and Samuel would deliver that word to Saul. So Saul is camped in the plain of Gilgal, waiting for Samuel to show up. This is a plain. This is a, this is a lower area. Up on the hills, above them, is the Philistine army. They are camped in tents. Israel could see the fires. They could hear them drinking to their gods. They could hear them singing songs as they prepared for battle. And look at how the inexperienced, poorly armed Israelite soldiers reacted. Verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, The people hid in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Now, you appreciate that when they are so far outnumbered that this looks like a very deadly situation from a human perspective. Israel became terrified. In fact, that term hard-pressed comes from one Hebrew word, nagas, which describes an impossibly demanding situation. They're just overwhelmed. It's oppressive pressure. 
And it causes many Israelites to find a place to hide anywhere. They're looking for a way to escape in every hollow, crevice, nook, and cranny they could find. This was a crisis. The whole, pl- the whole nation's under pressure. And who feels it the most? King Saul. He's under tremendous strain. He responds this way, verse 7. Verse 7. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So day after day drags by, tension mounts, and every day more and more soldiers desert. So what was already a bad situation gets worse. The mighty Philistines are just a short distance away preparing to attack. Israel, we learn later, has only sharpened farm tools to fight with. They're not even properly armed. And by day seven, when there's no sign of Samuel, there are only 600 soldiers left in Saul's army. 2,400 had scattered into hiding or had crossed the Jordan River to get out of harm's way. Now, God's prophet had told Saul to wait, but Saul looked at his circumstances. He looked at the danger and the deteriorating situation, and he panicked. Martha Major and her family were out uh, at a restaurant eating, and somewhere toward the end of the meal, uh, Martha remembered the eggs that she had been boiling. And she told her family, I left the eggs on the stove and the burner's still on. At this point, the eggs had been boiling for cooking for two hours. And all Martha could do was hope that her oldest son, Jake, who had stayed home because he had to go to work, had noticed this before he left for work. So the whole family rushed home, and they found the burner off, but the pan on the stove was empty, and the eggs had exploded and plastered all over the ceiling and walls. And there was a note from Jake. Mom, I turned the burner off. Your eggs look done. When pressure gets to us and we explode in panic, the results will not easily be put back together. When we are under pressure and we panic from that and we we react, it's pretty hard to put that explosion back. So notice what happens, what Saul does in that pressure-packed situation, verse 9. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. And just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. So Saul couldn't wait any longer. Before the seventh day was over, Saul went into panic mode, doing for himself what only Samuel should do. Now this might not seem like a big deal, when you read this, but you need to understand what it meant. Saul making the sacrifice himself was a problem, but that wasn't the big problem. The big problem, the real failure, was that he disobeyed the Word of God. Now, was it a, like a crucial word? Did it seem like this is a big deal? Not to us, but it was the Word of God that was very clear. He was to wait until Samuel arrived. That was God's next step for Saul. Yes, I know all this pressure under you. The next thing you need to do, wait seven days. 
But he panicked. And it led him to act before the seventh day was even over. And Samuel's first words to Saul are, what have you done? I've heard these words myself. In fact, that's me. That's me doing something that I at the time just thought, well, this is fun. And probably for one of the first times in my life, my mother said, what have you done? Not like a demon like that, sorry. Uh, What have you done? And she and my father said that many, many times throughout my life, like the time I made my own gunpowder and burned a hole in the wood floor. Uh, The time I cut a hole in my bedroom wall to make a safe. And many other times I'm not going to tell you about, what have you done? So Saul replies, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And we're going to take that apart in a few moments, but just understand, Saul's excuse was, I was in a really bad spot, and this was tough, and so I needed to really make sure that God liked me. Uh... In other words, he had this vending machine understanding of how God operates. And I'm under all this pressure, and you didn't show up to do this offering thing that we needed to do, and so I had to take action. And this is a common misperception among religious people today in our culture. So this idea that I'm going to do these certain things so that God will do certain things for me. So you might be in church today for a similar reason. Because tomorrow, you're interviewing for a job that you've got to have. And finances are tight, and this job will pay a good amount. And just thinking about this interview makes your palms sweaty, and you swallow hard, and you've polished your resume, and you've practiced answering questions about your strengths and weaknesses, and you're thinking, God's got to be happy with me. I'm in church I even put something in the offering plate. God's got to get this job for me. And that was what Saul was doing. God was someone to be used. He was a mysterious force who had to be satisfied so he would come through for you. And Samuel lets him know that that's the wrong choice. He says in verse 13, You've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Uh, Samuel doesn't say, don't worry, Saul, we all make mistakes, you're only human. No, he calls it foolish. Foolish. Why? Because this was a clear command from God. And Samuel is repetitive in what he says here. You disobeyed God's command that God commanded. He's repetitive. He's emphasized. This was a command of God. You might not have thought it was a big deal, but it's a big deal. And if you were Saul, you might say, but but I was in a tough spot. You don't know the stress I'm under. This command didn't make sense. It wasn't as important as all this stuff that's going on in my life. But Samuel says the reaction you had was rashly unwise. See, pressure caused Saul to panic and ignore God's clear command. He proved that he was not a man after God's own heart. 
As Israel's king, he was pledged to obey the word of God. But under pressure, he showed that his trust was more in his own resourcefulness. And when Samuel called these actions foolish, that word has the idea of living without taking God into consideration. So we're foolish whenever we live in a way that doesn't take God into consideration. It happens when you decide on a career or a university or a spouse without considering if this is God's will. It happens when you commit your money, your time, your passion to something without considering if this is what God wants. It happens when you react or you express an opinion without verifying if your thoughts or your actions line up with God's Word. And what we learn from Saul is this, that pressure's panic button is disobedience. What what happens when I panic under pressure? My inclination is to disobey. And God wants us to trust Him. He wants you to trust Him. He calls us to forgive those who wrong us, to be morally pure. But then when someone mistreats you, or you face a financial crisis, or a temptation jumps you, under pressure, you might feel forced to act. And you allow stressful circumstances to push you into a decision that might be clearly outside the will of God. Clearly. It might be rushing into marriage uh, without considering, is this what God wants? And you're doing that because you're lonely or you have needs or you want security or, or whatever that might be. And you, you might exchange vows with someone who's not a follower of, of Jesus. Or you might cut someone out of your life. You might refuse to forgive them after what they've done for you without considering what God's Word says in that situation. See, it's in these high stress times that we come up with tons of excuses. Now, I want to just show you some of Saul's excuses. Because here, I I would call them four signs of panicking under pressure. From Saul's excuses, four signs of panicking under pressure. Here's number one. You blame others. How do I know I'm panicking under pressure? You blame others. Saul does that. He says, the people were scattering and you did not come. Verse 11. So Saul felt abandoned by his soldiers. He felt disappointed by Samuel. And this increased his anxiety level. Beware when you feel unsupported by others. Beware when you feel that they have failed you, that they owe you, that they haven't helped you in your time of need. Because then you are vulnerable to panicking under pressure. So, first sign is you blame others. Second sign You imagine the worst. Verse 12, he says, now the Philistines will come down against me. So Saul feels threatened. He doesn't see any good outcome possible. That's why he goes into action, because he humanly looked at things and he says, okay, I've got to do something. And notice, they're going to attack him. He doesn't say my people. He doesn't say my soldiers. Me! Me. Beware when you evaluate a situation and you see only the worst outcome. Your attitude may signal panic under pressure. Imagine the worst. Third, you manipulate God. So so that's what Saul is saying when, when he says, all this bad stuff has happened and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. You see, that was Saul's vending machine approach to God. 
He is substituting religious ritual for real worship. Beware. When you substitute religious ritual, when you substitute doing these things in order so that God will do that thing, beware when you, you think if you say the right thing the right way, then God will do right by you. That's a manipulation of God. God wants your heart. Fourth, you refuse responsibility. I love what Saul says here because I can identify with it. I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I didn't even want to do it. I had to force myself to disobey God because I was in such a tough spot. I've made words to that effect myself in my lifetime. Saul says I didn't have a choice. His circumstances were so bad. Others had failed so much, and the threat was so strong. He had to. He's abdicating responsibility. Beware when you begin to think that the only option you have is to disobey God. I don't know how many times in my life I've sat across from people that are in a tough spot, and they are they they basically say they don't use these words, but you know I had no choice but to do this thing, which I know is wrong. Not taking responsibility. See, panic pressure's panic button is disobedience. So remember that job that you're interviewing for tomorrow? Your stomach does flip-flops as you're thinking about it. You know, what might happen if I don't get this? Because you have the experience. Now, your resume doesn't do you justice. And, and so you tweak it a little bit. And that seminar you took turns into an associate of arts degree. Because, I mean... After all, your experience isn't worth at least that much. God knows how much you need this. And so under pressure, you've pressed that panic button of disobedience. Or your relationship with your husband is a mess. You fight about everything, especially money. Counseling hasn't worked. He left for work in the middle of an argument and said not to expect him home anytime soon. And you feel trapped and angry and devalued. But there is someone you know who does seem to value you. Someone who makes you feel alive. And you've never allowed yourself to think about it before, but now you're considering something with this other person because it feels like your husband is pushing you in that direction. And you know, well, there's a verse that says, God will not tempt you beyond what you can bear. He'll make a way out so you can stand up under it. That's his promise. But right now, uh, you don't feel you can bear it. And you are about ready to push the panic button of disobedience. Or you have a new supervisor, and he keeps making changes to the way that you've been doing stuff for years. And there doesn't seem to be any reason for some of those changes and other ideas you just don't plain like. And every week there's a new directive, there's an adjustment to procedure, and the old ways that you're used to are being ignored and left behind. Uh, And and, and what was comfortable was disappearing. disappearing. And you're stressed out about this. As a Christian, you know you should respect your employer, but you harbor bad feelings and you make critical remarks to coworkers. And, and in quiet rebellion, you no longer work quite as hard on these new initiatives. And pressure has pushed you to react sinfully. That's what it does. How, how can we operate without panic in a situation like this? 
Because every one of us has or will face situations where we're being squeezed by trouble, expectations, pain, need, want, temptation. And we might say, well, obeying God in this situation will cost me too much. It's not that big a deal. We tell ourselves, God's word doesn't really apply to my circumstances here. And we hit the panic button. Don't let pressure push you in that direction. So what should you do instead? Well, here is the New Testament answer. It's one you probably know. But, but let, let's apply it. Let's remind ourselves where it's at. Here's the New Testament answer. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now, now let me say something. I want you to, to receive it here. Just consider this. Panic is a sign of arrogance. Anxiety is a sign of arrogance. Now, how can I say that? Well, well, first of all, you, you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Why would he say that? It's because when I look at pressure, and when I have stress, and I have this scary situation, and I think, I've got to find a way out. What am I going to do? That's arrogance. Uh, And the more I think that all of this depends on me, the more I see myself as the Savior. And my anxiety level ramps up and panic and depression can set in. And if I do figure my way out, find my way out, uh, fight my way out, this actually distances me from God. Because it increases my arrogance. That's why we're to humble ourselves. Uh, by the way, when it says anxiety is there, that word anxiety is the Greek word it, it is merimimno. And it refers to worry. It refers to pressure. It refers to stress. So what do you do with all that worry, pressure, stress, anxiety? Cast it on him. Now, let me point out to you that that word casting appears only one other time in the New Testament. And it shows up on Palm Sunday. It's when the disciples get the donkey for Jesus to ride on. And they throw their coats on the donkey. They cast their coats on the donkey. And so the meaning of casting is simple. If you have a coat and you want an animal to carry it for you, you cast the garment on the animal. You don't carry it anymore. It's on the animal, not on you. God is willing to carry your anxieties the same way a donkey carries your baggage. Now how do you practically make the anxiety transfer from your back to God? What's that verse say? You cast them because He cares for you. So I've got to understand, I've got to believe, I've got to trust that God cares for me. That the God of the universe actually cares about me. Trusting God cares about my pressure is how I put it on Him. And I express that in prayer. I speak that out to God. I say these things to God. I dump these things on God. And what stresses does He care about? All. All. Now, some of you are under some enormous pressures. Some of you are on little itty-bitty pressure. And 
you might feel it's huge and it's little, at least to the person under enormous pressure. Whether it's big, large, somewhere in between, tiny, cast it all on him. Express that to him. And so let me put it this way. When pressured, unburden yourself to God. Unburden yourself to God. Now, let me ask you, under pressure, are you more like a shark or a goat? I'm going to apologize in advance for this illustration, but uh, stay with me. Because when I'm talking about goats, I'm talking about that special breed of goats, the fainting goats. Now, if you, if you haven't seen them in person, you've probably seen a YouTube video because it's hilarious. Now, not too far from my mother's place, just little, I think the next neighbor over, they have some of those fainting goats. And, you know, we, when we visit my mom, we walk down the street and, and you know, scare a couple goats because it's funny. It, it seems cruel, but it's really, it's really not. So we don't visit that often, but it's still. Because what happens is, if you haven't seen these, when they're startled, they freeze and fall over. And in panic, they, they, when they get panicked, like a sharp noise or just anybody, uh, they, they start to run and their muscles stiffen and they become momentarily incapacitated. Now, I'm not a self-defense expert, but I really don't think that's all that effective. I'm in trouble. Ugh. So are you like a goat or a shark? Sharks are apex predators. Oh, they do have some enemies, larger sharks, um, killer whales. Killer whales take out sharks. Read an article on that this week. And humans. And when in a high-stress situation, the apex predator shark is known to expel everything from their stomach, including their stomach. And so, if a shark feels in danger, it can react by vomiting. Why? Well, maybe the enemy will be so grossed out, he'll go away. Or maybe as some feel that with an empty belly, the shark can swim more quickly. Well, if I have to picture one of those reactions to the pressures in my life, let me tell you, it should be to expel, to throw off all my anxiety away from me and onto the Lord. And, and honestly, the first and greatest burden is your sin. And it is arrogant, arrogant to believe that you can be good enough to earn God's favor. It's arrogant to believe that you can handle the weight of your sin, that you can pay the price for your own sin. Only Jesus can bear the weight of your sin. And he did that on the cross. His bloody death paid for all who transfer their trust to him. Those who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is their Savior, believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. You are the saved ones who no longer bear the penalty for your sin or the fear of death because you're in Christ. And for those of you who belong to Jesus, you can be arrogant in how you approach life. 
You can lug around all your pressures and anxieties and you can engineer your solutions and lean on your own resources and let panic push you to disobey what God has said. But His Word calls you to a different path. As a follower of Christ, know that your sin is paid for, that you belong to Him, that your trust is in Him alone because that's what God wants in the impossible situation in your life. He wants you to trust Him. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, faith is a refusal to panic. That means you might have a great reason to panic, but faith says, I'm not going to do it because my trust is in the Lord alone. And since you belong to Jesus, you don't hide, you don't run, you don't disobey God, you don't go do your own thing. Under pressure, unburden yourself to the Lord and trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you and you alone know the hearts of all of us in this place today. You know how much stress we're under. You know what we're tempted and struggling with. You know our perspective. on So Lord, I pray that you would meet each of us where we are and what we need from you. Help each of us, Lord, to just want to cast, to throw, to unburden ourselves, our cares on you. And know that you are enough. Lord, I, I, I understand There's, there are situations that we are facing right now that seem insurmountable. That there are, are maybe many that feel overwhelmed with a situation right now. Lord, may in Jesus' name we cast that care on you. Because you are a God who is trustworthy, faithful, and true give you praise in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.